Hey, this is Julius coming in from the recording room. Just the uh, before we start the show up, there's an interview that Albert did with Morton that was originally supposed to air on last episode. Morton had posted on the uh, guild that he was designing a new game, and Albert gave him a call and chatted with him a bit about it. Nobody informed me about it, so it didn't get edited into the last podcast. We're editing it now, uh, so here's the interview, and then we'll get on with the show. All right, I have Morton Monrad Pedersen here, Morton of uh, Altoma Factory, um, well-known on the One Player Guild and probably the One Player Podcast also. Hey, Morton, how's it going? I'm good. And you, Albert? I'm doing all right. Thank you. Um, we want to talk to you today because um, you've got some news about something you're going to be working on. Yeah. Probably not a lot of news yet, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about it. Sure. And you thought it'd be fun to talk about <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, so can we start with uh, what is Mor- uh, well, who is Morton and what is Altoma Factory? Yeah, well, Morton is a guy who likes board games, <laughs> and uh, he in particular likes solo board games. Uh, and Altoma Factory is a company that I started a year and a half ago to work on making bots for multiplayer games. And I call these bots Altoma. Altoma is from the Italian word for automaton. And in that company, I've been doing some of these bots. I've done one for Multiculture, I've done one for Petrolatic Series, and I've done one for Scythe. I've done this together with some friends who are helping me, David Stotley, who you might also know from the One Player Guild, and uh, Linus Ruta, who is also active on the PGG. Nice. Okay. And so what's neat about the uh, the automas you've designed is they, they tend to keep the, the feel of the original game so that you're playing an opponent. Right. As opposed to maybe something where it suddenly becomes um, a, a more abstract goal. Yeah, definitely. It's my goal to try and mimic all the core interactions between you and another player so that you get the feel of a, of a multiplayer game. Yeah, nice. And I've played uh, two of them. I've played uh, Between Two Cities and... Um, why can I not remember the name? G-Culture or Scythe? Yeah. Yes, and Viticulture. I have not played Scythe. Um, and I really like them both. The, 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 they're both fun. The Viticulture, it, it makes a nice, quick, tense game. And, and Between Two Cities, it's just fun. I'm happy to hear that because... I... Just mm-hmm. today I was uh, looking at extending the Automa for an upcoming expansion for that game. Ah, for Between Two Cities. Yeah. Um, ah, neat. Ben and Matthew, who made, uh, who made the multiplayer game, have uh, also made an expansion. So uh, I started looking at whether we could uh, extend the Automa to also handle the expansion stuff. Okay, very cool. Um, I'll look forward to that. And that's not out at all yet. The, oh no no! It, it's, it'll take a while yet. Um, it it hasn't started uh, graphics design or anything, but I think the playtesting is uh, is more or less done. Nice. Okay. Very cool. And so now you said you had some news um, because you were talking to a publisher and you may be working on an automa for them. Yeah, and it's something I'm very excited about. It's a uh, about a month ago, uh, the German publisher Feuerland, they uh, wrote me an email. It's a, a company that was started by Uwe Rosenberg and uh, Frank Heeren, and they published 
Agricola and uh, Terra Mystica and some other great games. So I was very excited about getting a mail from them. And they asked me whether I want to work on an awesome for their upcoming game. And uh, I was definitely interested in that. I would love to work with a legend of the business like uh, Uwe Rosenberg. And it's also a company that has three games in the Board Game Geek Top 10. So it was an awesome opportunity. I just had a couple of problems. And uh, the main one is time, as you might imagine. <laughs> they, David and I have been working for a long time on an expansion for Euphoria. And we have been having a lot of problems with that. But finally, it was starting to uh, to get together. This was starting to work. And we, we want to go into uh, full playtesting soon. But that will require time. And there's also a, a tight deadline on this new game. So... We have a, had a time issue. And uh, so I was considering whether to turn them down or, or try to figure something out. But then they told me what the game actually was. And it's a game called Gaia that's a follow-up to uh, Terra Mystica, uh, one of the biggest successes. And I really, really, really wanted to work on that. <laughs> so uh, I talk, talked to David Studley about how we could try to work it out so we could uh, handle both the Euphoria expansion and work on Gaia. And so we talked about how we could divide the labor to keep both things moving. But still, it, it would probably mean a delay for Euphoria, and I felt pretty bad about that because we were already very delayed with that project. So going and asking... My boss, Jamie Stegmeier, whether we could uh, risk delaying it even more so that I could work for a competitor. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was not an easy question to ask. Mm -hmm. um, so I, uh, it took me about a week to work up the courage to ask Jamie whether it would be okay with him. And luckily, he was very, very positive about it. Uh, Terra Mystica which is his predecessor to this new game, Gaia, is uh, one of his absolute favorites, and it was a big inspiration for Scythe. So he was a uh, go-for-it, and uh, so I said yes to uh, Feuerland that we would try it out, and it's very important for me right now to stress that it's just something we're trying out. We don't know whether it'll actually make it into the final game. It needs to be good before we want to do that. We'd rather not do it than publish something bad. And uh, Feuerland feels exactly the same way. So we need to have something that playtesters will like and something that Feuerland will like before it gets into the box. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the story of uh, of this new game. Okay, that's, uh, that, that's neat how uh, Jamie supports it and uh, you're going to be yeah, able to get awesome. to on both. Mm-hmm. Now, so so the the new game is it at a point where you you're ready, able to start now, or is it still going under de in development? By the um, we we are looking at it from a, a high level at this moment because there will still be some changes uh, to the multiplayer version, so we won't go into too many details. Mm -hmm. But we built a framework um, inspired by Terra Mystica. And that seems to uh, 
to at least have a shot at making this work. But we'll have to try it out once uh, the game is further along. But that should happen very soon. Okay. Uh, but but there are big parallels between Gaia and Terra Mystica, so we can take a look at Terra Mystica to get inspiration and to try out ideas and then, then later on adapt them to Gaia. I see. The Terra Mystica already has a solo variant, is that true? There, there, might, might, be one, be a, there might be an unofficial one, uh, but there's nothing uh, from Fireland. Okay. And so when you go and de- design an Ultima, you have to play a, a lot of solo and competitive games, right, to get a feel for it. Yeah, I, I play some uh, some multiplayer games to get, to get a feel for the game, to get a feel for what's important, uh, what the core interactions of the game is, and then I I try to transfer them to uh, to a solo game. So so basically, I get some rough ideas about how this could work uh, from playing multiplayer, and then I sit down and I just try to play solo with uh, an Ultima that is still very rough and will still be be changing basically uh, every second turn I will make changes to it <laughs> uh, and I won't you know in the previous Ultimas I made I've always ended up with a, a deck of cards that controls the action selections of uh, the Ultima but in the beginning of the process I don't have those cards I just have some rough tables uh, and then roll a die so it, it, that table might say uh, one, two, three, colonize, four, build a bridge, and so on, and then I roll a 10-sided die, for example, and look up in the table. Okay, I rolled a two. That means I the, the automa will do a colonization action. Um, and I do that because making it a deck for a game that's still changing every two turns <laughs> would be a waste of time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You'd be scribbling all over the cards, and by the end, you, you can't tell what it's supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would be making a new deck uh, three times per game. Yeah, that might not work so well. Okay. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's... But that's the stage we are at right now where it's changing all the time and we are there are a lot of stuff that we are not dealing with. But we have a rough r- framework based on uh, Terra Mystica. Okay. Now, are we able to talk about the theme of Gaia at this point? Yeah, sure. Uh I can't say very much. I want to uh, let Fireland be the ones who uh, who decide when what should be announced. But basically, it's a uh, Terra Mystica in space, uh, and with a the rival board. I don't know whether you know Terra Mystica. I've never played it. That, yeah. Okay. It it has a static board uh, and an, an extra one or two in the expansion. But in uh, Gaia, you have ten tiles. Uh, with hexes on them, and then you place them in a random grid to make the board so that it changes from uh, game to game. Um, so there'll be more variability in, in the board than there were in uh, Terra Mystica. But other than that, it, there are a lot of similarities and, of course, also some changes. Okay. That sounds really cool. I look forward to to seeing more about this. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope it will work out. Um, It's a very big step for Ultima Factory to uh, be able to uh, not just work with Stormire Games, but also uh, a company like Feuerland and Rosenberg. Mm -hmm. 
Now that, that's neat that they contacted you. Had they? Do you know if they had played like a Scythe or Between Two Cities or one of the other games, Viticulture? Uh, I don't know whether you know this, but a while back we released a version of Viticulture called Essential Edition. Mm-hmm. That's what I have. And yeah, okay. It was actually Uwe Rosenberg's version of uh, Viticulture. Uh, he he contacted Jamie about making a new German edition of Viticulture, and uh, that ended up being the Essential Edition, which Feuerland then published in German, and uh, Stone My Games published in English. Um, so they knew who I who I was, and they had seen uh, my Automa for Viticulture, and from I think Frank uh, Frank Heeren from Feuerland uh, also had played uh, the Scythe Automa. So, so they knew me a little bit already, and they have seen some of my work, some of our work, I should say. I shouldn't forget that it's just just me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, I, I've, I guess um, Uwe Rosenberg must like solo games because all his all his games seem to have a variant, or many of them do. Yeah, yeah, most of them, I think. Well, all right, um, congratulations! Uh, thank you for sharing thank this with much. us. Thank you very much. It's, uh, yeah, as I've said a couple of times, I'm very excited about this, and I really hope it'll work out. But we don't know at this point. Yeah, well, you know, we'll keep our our ears and our eyes open. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'll keep you posted. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on the show. the One Player Podcast, the show on Solid Award Games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 113, the interview episode. Followed next time by the guest episode. Hey, Julius, how you doing? I'm doing quite well. Glad to be back. Sorry, I missed an episode or two there. Excellent. I'm glad you guys filled in in my absence. Yeah, we managed. Minor errors. Yeah, <laughs> minor errors, yes. But we don't count them. We don't count them at all. Um... But it has been a busy time of year, and, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up, so there's going to be not much recording. Fortunately, we got an episode in the can already, because we recorded 114 before 113, which is neat. <laughs> Don't tell anyone the secrets. <laughs> secrets, sir. Nobody should know. Nobody should, but now they do, unless ah. this gets edited out. So, anyway... um. I don't really have much in the way of news, if anything. I'm really waiting for stuff to come out. It seems like there should be tons of stuff about to come out. What I'm are you looking f- forward to? I'm waiting for Nautilian. I'm waiting for the Pandemic Dice expansion. I I'm don't... waiting for myself to get a copy of um, Feasts of Odin. I'm oh. waiting for Arkham Horror, the living card game. Yeah, I don't know if I'm waiting for that or not. You don't know? I, have, I thought you were really into it. I have not. De- yes, I am. And I have not decided what I'm going to do about it. I suspect I know the answer. Should I get it or should I not? I already have the well, Lord of the Rings card game. Do I really need two living card games to keep up with? Is there going to be anything else coming out for Lord of the Rings? Uh, there's a, they've announced another saga that's, that should start shipping soon. So, yeah. There's at least... Keep up with both. Yeah. Keep yeah. up with both. Yeah. And actually play them? <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know. I can tell you. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. But 
but still, there is a lot of stuff otherwise, and I'm sure there's more, but I can't think. Gloomhaven. I don't remember that one. V Commandos. Nope. Oh, V Commandos. I'm really interested in. Mm, okay. I think that's almost almost maybe coming out of Kickstarter finally, but there are lots of things coming up on the horizon. Terraforming Mars. Mm-hmm. That sounds Although, interesting. Technically, Feasts of Odin is already out. Curse you, low player count. <laughs> and Terraforming Mars is also technically already out. But good luck finding either one of those, because they are sold out. Mm-hmm. There'll be new copies you know, in a month or two, I bet. Um. Well, I have it on good source that there's going to be more stock coming out January. Did you know how I heard about that? No. Well, we happened to have brought Stephen Bonacore, CEO of Stronghold Games, on, and we talked with him. Oh, so let's ask him. Oh, you already did. Let's listen to you ask him. All right, I'm here with live with Stephen Bonacore of Stronghold Games. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Tired, but really, really good. Tired? I hear you've been going to quite a number of conventions recently. Quite a number of conventions. Obviously, Essen was uh, tremendous to do for uh, for Stronghold, uh, and uh, we've been re- been bringing we brought back uh, like 50 different games to do testing on. So this is the the time of the year where you know. Some people are thinking the convention season, you know, goes down and, you know, and we, we don't have to do that anymore. But now we're planning out the 2017 schedule. So there's a lot of work to be done here to see what we, uh, to see, weed through all those games and see what we're going to do for next year. So I'm curious, as you don't do the design work for the games or I'm, what, what's your level of involvement in the games and publishing them? What exactly do you do? What exactly? What do, what do I do? Well, I am stronghold Games, So we can start with that. So I am the president and owner of the company and I am not a designer. I always say that I'm not smart enough to be a designer, but I'm smart enough to know where the great design is and what a great, when a great game is pitched to me, you know, I'm uh, obviously integral in that selection process. Uh, so uh, we do quite a few of our games are done by co-publications with other partners in Europe or in Asia. So they're either already published games or games that are about to be published. And we then take those games and either localize them if they're not in English already or review them to make sure that that English is good that was in the box, now is even better, and then bring them out under our brand. And we do have worldwide distribution, so uh, we then get it out across the world to many small publishers who don't have that, that ability. Uh, but then, we know, of course, we also do um, like in-house. When I say in-house, designers pitch games to me, to Stronghold Games, and we we vet them to make sure they're good. Brand new designs. Obviously, I work a lot with Jeff Engelstein. We've done several of his games with Jeff Engelstein and family. The Fog of War is his most recent, and Solo Design, The Dragon and Flag, and another one. So we'll take games from the ground up as well. And and just so it's clear, since we're on a podcast where that may have a different term, when you say solo design, you mean it's a di- design he's doing himself, not a solitaire game. That's right. Very good. Very good uh, clarification there. Yeah, Jeff Engelstein uh, designs with his family, which is a, a really wonderful thing. He's got uh, two children who are now adults, and but they've been doing this. Uh, they're not, they're now twenty and twenty two years old, uh, but they've been doing this since they for ten years with him. So um, uh, now. 
and, and all of his designs have been with his family, uh, Brian and Sidney Engelstein and Jeff Engelstein. And now Jeff Engelstein has done his first solo design game that he's done only on his own, The Fog of War, and, we're, and that's going to be coming out uh, in a few weeks from Stronghold Games. And you were talking about what's your level of involvement with those games? Do you go through a development process with them? Do you work with the designers? In, in all, in all um, both of the styles of games I just mentioned, both of the types of games when, when they're either something that's co-published with somebody already, another you know, foreign publisher that we're bringing in, uh, and definitely with um, the a designer who brings me a game, we definitely have to go through a process of vetting that game playing that game, making sure it, it works the way it's supposed to work, the way the designer you know is presenting it to us, uh, getting out any ambiguities, streamlining it. Uh, there's a there's depending again on on the state of the, the game when it's presented to us and it, so especially with the prototypes with a brand new design, we are integrally involved in making sure that game works works well. I mean my brand is going to go on it. Uh, so that's why I you know we, we need to be very, very involved and very, very closely working with the designers to make sure that those games work as well as, as they should work for gamers. When is there any type of game that you feel you know really exemplifies the type of game that Stronghold is looking for? Ah, great question. They, that's one of those things that I've I've always wanted to. Um, um, I I've, I always have said that I don't want Stronghold to be pigeonholed into like one style of game. You know, but what I want is to have an entire breadth of games from the smallest games, single, just card games that only have cards in it, like our Fuji Flush, which is from Freedom and Freeze and 2F Spiel in Germany. It's just a deck of cards, all the way to the biggest of the biggest games that I've done. I've done $100 games, you know, uh, Space Cadets Away missions, you know, with 100 plastic miniatures in it. I want, I want all gamers to be looking at Strongholds and saying, well, what is Stronghold doing in that? In that genre, so right, so for instance, uh, heavy heavy Euro gamers now, um, you know, what are we doing? What what's Stronghold doing in, in in the you know 2016 Essen releases? And they'll they'll be saying, oh oh, oh look at that, they've they've got Great Western Trail by Alexander Pfister, so they'll come to us for that. Oh, what are they doing in like that family weight game, Fabled Fruit? One of our new releases coming out uh, just just hit the streets, or just will be hitting the streets in a week. So I want to be. A, a shop for everybody to say, you know, what are we doing in the kind of games that I like and not be pigeonholed. So my catalog is very varied uh, and that is done, you know, in a premeditated way. I want that to be the case. Is it, So there's not really like a theme or anything you can see through your games. You're just trying to get a little bit of everything. I'm exactly trying to get a little bit of everything. In the, early on, I did quite a bit of uh, space games. So in some ways, people have said, oh, you know, Stronghold does a lot of space-themed science fiction games. But if you take a look at the catalog now, it's, you know, it, while it might be a fairly, you know, a decent percentage, it's certainly not the, the majority. Uh, you know, plenty of the Euro themes, you know, we're doing. We're doing the farming games, you know, with uh, La Granja and La Granja No Siesta, uh, which is, uh, you know, one of our new games as well. So we're really going the whole the whole spectrum of, of games with quite a bit of the Euro themed um, Euro themes that um, that segment of the market is looking for. And a number of your games, both recently and in recent history, have been solitaire friendly. Space Sheep, um, La Granja, your new La Granja game, Terraforming Mars. Is that a plus when you get them in, or is that something the designers have done? Or is that something you're looking for? It, it, this is a funny thing. Um, I, I'm a person, I play om, almost every one of my games with 
many people. Like I like big player counts, which is you know sort of the opposite of what you know what, what your focus is on. So when I when I'm talking to designers, I'm very often saying, you know, can we get to a fifth player? Can we get to a sixth player? You know, um, I'm a very social person. Um, so you know, I like sitting around a table. You know, when we be trash talking with friends, having a having an adult beverage, and that's that's the kind of style of game I like. However. There's been a big thing, and, and obviously your podcast is focused on it, a big, I don't know, not resurgence is not the word, but there's been a big push to have solo play games, have games that can play with one player. So it's absolutely a plus to have that. Um, so now, I mean, you know, the, you know, I mean, Terraforming Mars is just a, is a, is a great example of now, now I have a game that can play to five players. Okay, that's kind of my style, right? You know, big, you know, big game, lots of players at the table. But, but you know, when you don't have that group there, Boom! You can bring it out, crack it open, and try to you know beat the game system itself. Uh, that's that I think is a very big plus, and uh, and terraforming Mars has gotten such a great buzz in general terms, but now even that people are looking at it and saying, "Wow, I mean, not only can I get this you know relatively expensive game, oh, you know, am I ever going to get to play it? Oh, yes, I will. I'm going to play it with myself. Make sure I learn it, make sure I play it, enjoy it, and then maybe I'll be get to play it with you know my husband or wife or friends later on too. So. Yes, absolutely, is a a big thing that we can uh, we can get the solo player count in there as well. Do the games come to you with the solo modes, or do you ask the designers if they want to add them in, or how does that process? In most, through? in I would say in every case, it's it's come to me um, that the designer has already created it in that way. It's as I mentioned about myself, I. I'm not a person who necessarily looks for that. So I'm always looking for the, hey, can you add a player? Not, you know, can we can we get it down to one player? So every time I've had a, a game that can play solo, it has been that the designer has come to me and said, hey, we, by the way, we also have a solo mode. And, you know, that's one extra checkbox. It's a, a good thing to have. And do you do, does Stronghold do any playtesting for those solo versions? Or do you leave that up to the designer? Um, you know that's that's interesting. I've don't think I've ever done a play test on a solo. So in other words, right? We're gonna we're gonna play test it with with the you know the 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 more the more general player counts, the two to four to five or six. We're gonna test it in those ranges. I don't think that I've ever you know when the designer said oh and it plays one that I've actually specifically gone and made sure that that worked, which is probably something that we should do. But it's all. I would, and I would probably say that when I give it to one of my guys, that they're, in in essence, kind of testing it anyway. One of, if one of my guys will take a game, it's normally the way the process works, right? Um, we'll get the game in, and someone will, you know, get it on my my team. My team being mostly friends and associates who do my my play testing with me. Give it to them. They'll run through it. So I guess in essence, they've done that kind of solo test. Because they're learning it. So they're learning it and setting it up and running through it. Um, when I get it, when I see it, when I'm playtesting it, I'm doing it in the multiplayer account. Just because that's more like your enjoyment. It's my enjoyment level. And it's in a lot of ways more – well, more people are going to be focusing on the multi, the multiplayer version of the game uh, than the than the solo. Well, because one person <laughs> focuses on a solo, but many people focus on the multiplayer. Uh, so uh, – mm -hmm. but – but I guess the you know the play tester himself, the person that it's been handed over to, um, is going to be looking at it from that perspective as well. And I guess if they found a hole or they found rules ambiguities, uh, they would report it back, and then we would go through and say, well, you know, why, 
what what is not working about a the solo version of the game yeah i found also just personally that when you're making games with solo modes you really have to work to make sure that the main version works clearly and smoothly before you can do any sort of integration to the yeah, solo agreed. mode. That's just been my experience personally. So I found also that with some of your co-ops, I think you only have one co-op game or two, this oh, space sheep and space cadets away mission. Uh, and we have a bunch of team versus team games. Um, uh, and then there's the, um, I guess you you know like the hidden trader, which is not co-op, of course, but you have some cooperative nature to those things. But yeah, I guess the very specific ones uh, would be those two. Yep. Mm-hmm. And those are examples of ones that I've felt have worked um, pretty well. Uh, solitaire. Um, are you familiar with both of those? Do you want to talk yeah, a bit about sure. those? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, Space Sheep. That's an old one of our older ones from 2011, 12. Um, it's a puzzle, right? You're solving a puzzle. So certainly that works, uh, great in a, in a completely solo mode. You're trying to, with a very human, very, yeah, I mean, it's tongue in cheek. The, the box cover looks like possibly the, uh, uh, a movie poster from the, from the early eighties, <laughs> Star Wars, excuse me. And, uh, you know, you're trying to get your space sheep and your shepherd class ships back to their home planets. Uh, and you're doing that, you know, via solving the puzzle. You know, when you when you activate a uh, a given a given planet's um, power, you can move various pieces around the board, and you're trying to solve it. When you do it with many players, um, it's it's interesting as well, of course, because now you have the many brains trying to figure it out. When you're doing it alone, it's uh, it could be. I think it's even harder to to uh, end up doing that. So uh, um, I've again, I've never played that one solo either, but um, uh, it is very – it's a very thinky game, especially when you play it with the timer, when you're trying to do it to make sure that you you don't play the full game. It has the timer out there and you have – if you don't do things in a, cer- in a certain time frame, you get penalized. Um, do you um, – have you played that one um, solo? guess you have. I have played that one solo, yes. I've I'm, I mean I second everything it is that you said so far about it. It's a very thinky puzzle. Um, what really drew me to that was the humor on the car on the box cover. Honestly, I saw it and I just laughed looking and then seeing exactly what it was going for. Yeah, and again, the theme is very light on there. The really, you know, it really is a puzzle game, right? That, that's that's really what you're doing. You're solving the puzzle of getting the 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 sheep and the ships, which are in colors, back to their home planet, which is obviously a color as well. Uh, and then you can make that puzzle as simple as you want. That's something to, in, interesting to bring out, right? So you can you can make it really, really easy only with um, – I think the basic way we do it is with four planets uh, in the – you know, that you have to do. So four colors. But if you want to go crazy, you can put out all eight of them. Now you're trying to get essentially 16 pieces, you know, two in each color back to the, the that color planet. So um, not an easy thing to do. Uh, it's not something that I I've ever achieved. Let's put it that way. I've certainly played the more basic versions of that, and I uh, uh, and I'm fairly good at it. But once we get above like six planets, oh my gosh, it's it's pretty insane. <laughs> I don't think I've ever played it on yeah. the harder difficulty <laughs> levels, honestly. But I know that some of your more recent games have also really been uh, hitting the hotness and getting a lot of popularity. And right now, I'm thinking of like Grand Hunt and Terraforming Mars. Do you, you know, what do you do when you see some games becoming more popular than others or more hot than others? Rejoice. 
<laughs> it's uh, <laughs> terraforming is, is is just gone off off the charts. I mean, it's it stayed, it's been pinned at like number one on the BGG hotness for for a month now almost, and and has been in the top five on the hotness since before Gen Con, which is really 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 wonderful. And I gotta I thank all the fans out there that have um, have embraced uh, the game. Uh, I specifically think that the the game has gotten so much popularity because, well, of course, the gameplay speaks for itself, but the theme has been, as I believe, this is sort of just, you know, my belief. You know, you always look for that. What's that secret sauce? What's make What's made the game great? Uh, and this game hits on a number of different sil- cylinders, right? We have solo play. We have up to five players in the game. We've got great euro mechanics. We got a tremendous replayability because there's 200 different cards in the game. Um, so the game is going to play completely different every time you play it. Um, and I think the theme has simply grabbed people in a way that, you know, your, I don't know, your generic farming theme or your generic, even science fiction theme hasn't grabbed, you know, people on that level. Now you're, the people are looking at the game and saying, you know, this is sort of the future. This is where we could end up. Mars is a huge topic right now. I mean, in so many ways, we've got landers on Mars constantly. They're they're actually planning multiple uh, organizations are planning manned missions, you know, to Mars. So, being that great topic, people are actually kind of saying, "Wow, I can kind of see the future here." So, you know, I want to be involved, you know, in my in my hobby gaming as well. So, I, that's my opinion on why. It's uh, really, really just stayed so hot for so long, and it looks like there's no end in sight. It can continue to uh, to be hot on on the geek. So you think that in part it's due to the theme, really recognizing with people about sort of where modern times are going. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it is. Um, in fact, <laughs> I just saw that there's a. Um, uh, there's a show um, going to be on television in a couple of weeks, and it's just called Mars, and it's going to be a, uh, I don't know, multi. It's going to be a number of episodes, I think, where they're going to have a fictitious sort of mission to Mars and see how that would go. I mean, I, I, I don't know anything about it. I happened to see it on while I was doing some channel surfing last night. So it's just such a big topic right now um, <laughs> that even, you know, we're going to be seeing, uh, you know, television shows about missions to mars so just yeah i think i think all of those things together but with even the most important part of that is that the theme is just really grab people so they're all gravitating toward the game so i know i haven't actually had a chance to talk much about terraforming mars on the podcast the last time i talked about was just before gen con and i know that at that point in time i did describe the solo mode incorrectly um do you want to talk a bit about how terraforming mars works in the solo mode and perhaps clarify that I can't give you a very good description of how it works in solo mode. I can only give you the description of how it works, period. I mean, you're trying to terraform the planet, change the planet's environment. Uh, So you need to, in general terms, you need to essentially raise the CO2 levels, which will bring up the temperature, increase oxygen levels. You're going to be adding, you're going to be, you know, managing resources on the planet. You're going to be uh, introducing plant life introducing animals, creating uh, habitats, all the things that one would have to do to end up with a planet where human beings can be on and live permanently. The, the game itself takes place 400 years in the future. So this is not a, um, this is not 
truly like an our lifetime kind of thing. So we could not terraform a planet right now. We could get there to Mars, and hopefully we will see that in our lifetimes. But um, this takes place a little bit in, in the future, 400 years. And another interesting thing is, is that the game itself uh, doesn't take place over a short period of time. It takes place over generations. Each game turn is a generation. So the game, and the game usually goes eight generations. So, you know, what's what's a generation uh, in human terms? Like 20, 25, 30 years, 20 something years like so. that. So if you think about it, you're it's still taking place over quite a period of time while, um, while you are completing the process of turning Mars into a habitable planet for humans and animals and plants. Um, great concept. Um, and, you know, apparently... Due to the uh, the great reception of uh, of people playing it solo, and my Twitter feed is blown up with people playing it solo all the time. Uh, it's uh, it's been doing very well in that mode as well. So just so I can correct about how the solo mode works from the last time I talked about it, because I've had the chance to look more into the game since then. Um, the way the solo mode works is that there's a part of the game called the corporate era version, which adds more um, strategy and complexity to the game by giving each player your own set of special player powers makes each player more unique and you can use those corporate era cards with some more cards in the deck and interact more strongly with those when you're playing solo rules you'll use the corporate era cards and you're playing instead of racing everyone else in order to be able to get more points by the time Mars gets terraformed, you now will have 14 generations in order to play. And the goal is in order to complete the terraforming before that time limit expires. So instead of racing everyone else to get more points before it's done, you now have a certain amount of time in order to complete the mission. Excellent. (laughs) That's very good. You haven't played it yet though, right? I have unfortunately not played it yet. I know that um, Terraforming Mars is quite popular, and I honestly cannot get my hands on a copy of it just about anywhere. It is it is out of print at the moment. It got so popular that you know our print run, which was quite large, uh, was sold through even before it was released. It was sold through into distribution, um, and crazy people on eBay, of course, are now charging ridiculous amounts of money ebay and, uh, and amazon <laughs> but we will get it back i promise everybody it's it's one of those things called a good pro- uh, a problem but a good problem i guess you know mm-hmm. uh but a problem nonetheless so we'll, we'll have them back in stores uh in january doing another very sizable print run so we'll the, the supply will be back apologies for the uh, short supply to everybody and you expect that to be in january time that's right we'll have them back in january so not in time for the holidays give you can give everybody a uh an iou for the holidays <laughs> and you expect to do another pre-order on your website for that? Well, no. Once once it's been in print, we don't, you know, we don't want that. That would be interfering with the um, with the retail chain. We'll just get it back in as soon as we can, and then you'll be able to get it from your friendly local or friendly online game store, whichever way. Or I mean, or you can order it on the Stronghold Games website, of course, as well. But it'll be the full price, and we'll just get it out into the retail chain, and people will be able to buy it any way they'd like. Mm-hmm. And another game I want to talk with you about was Lagranja and Lagranja uh, No Siesta. That Lagranja last on last year's um, one player choice, which probably our listeners are familiar with, but you may not be, is that our guild, which is admittedly a really big guild and not necessarily 
fully connected with the podcast, but we have a big guild, and every year we do the one-player choice awards for the top solo games for the year. And last year, the Grand High, I believe, ranked pretty highly, and I have to look up and see how high it is. I'm wondering if LeGrand, how the new DICE version of it is going to rank as highly. But what do you feel about DICE versions of the game? I know that you did did publish this one. Do you like having the DICE versions of the game to sort of recreate it, re-implement it? Um, LeGrand has sold very well for us. It's... Um... And it's such a nice, approachable, middleweight Euro game. Uh, so the the designer, uh, you know, in the game itself, in the original game, we it has a, a dice mechanic, uh, dice selection. Uh, so the designer essentially distilled that part of the game out, and the mechanics that are and the general mechanics involved in the game. He took that out, and then just created a a game just for that so you're going to be collecting resources based on the die the dice that are you know that you roll everyone gets to choose a die you'll be collecting people to help you out again each each one of the dot the dice obviously six-sided dice and one person will roll them and everyone will be able to select one at a time and then you'll be able to mark down what the resources you have and what what items you've 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 selected and you're going to be scoring points over time throughout throughout the game What's really good about it is that when you don't have, and again, it is playable solo in the dice version, and it's in the original version is playable solo. Uh, when you don't have, you know, um, an hour to ninety minutes, sixty to ninety minutes, you can play no siesta in like thirty minutes or so. So that's that's a big plus. Um, so I think that for any any game that sells very well, uh, it's nice to have that kind of extra game that you know you that we can bring out, of course, and that people who don't you know have the time to play the full ver- essentially the full version can play that distilled dice version instead so um, that comes out for us uh, in in about four weeks uh, the beginning of December and uh, I think it's going to be uh, a very popular game for us as well didn't you have it also at Essen I thought we did right we had the advanced copies there it's now currently floating over on a boat getting over to uh-huh. to the US for the warehouse we we normally you know have games at any one of the big conventions we'll have some of the advanced copies there so we can it's sort of like you know generating the initial buzz so the people will play it they like it they post about it they say how great it is and then of course later on it it will be in the uh, in stores uh, for us currently now it's uh, on pre-order on the website still so the idea of the dice games for you is it's like a shorter version of a popular game. Is that what you're looking for with the dice games? That's generally, I think, what people expect from uh, from dice games. I don't. Th- I think people are always expecting a a shorter version, right? D- dice games, of course, you have less mechanics. Uh, are not going to be the ones that you know are going to be the big, meaty, heavier kind of thing. So, uh, and so in this one in particular, right? He just he's just he already had a dice component uh, in Lagrana. There was already a, a dice selection mechanic so he's kind of used that general idea distilled it down but there's still a lot of meaty decisions to be made in lagranja the dice game no siesta so yeah i think that's a, a good way of putting it you kind of distill down and make a shorter version of the game so you can play it instead of playing the longer version when you don't have the time so next up is terraforming mars the dice game 
um, nothing on the horizon for that. There might be some expansions on the horizon for Terraforming Mars, but there's no <laughs> no dice game plan. I think only certain games can really, you know, would only suit uh, dice. Games. Obviously, there's no dice, no dice in in uh, in uh, Terraforming Mars, so uh, there's no dice mechanic, and so it's not not something that's going to make sense necessarily, um, you know, to have a dice version in, in Lagrana. There were dice. They were used in a specific way to to do that those selections. So you know he was smart enough to uh, to create you know to distill that down and create uh, the die version dice version based on that. Mm-hmm. So you've recently been traveling to Essen and a couple couple other conventions, and you've been doing that in official stronghold capacity, right? Sure, we do it to all the major conventions. You enjoy going to these conventions? What's your favorite part about going to all these things? Uh, the drinking beer after the working day? No, it's, <laughs> that's, not, that's not it, actually. No, I mean, it, certainly that's a good part of it. Believe me, it is fun. But um, no, I, it, I, I, I'm a firm believer, especially in the consumer shows. Not only do they, you know, um, when you have great games, of course, uh, and people are demanding them that, you know, you – You'll you'll sell quite a few. That's always a good thing, of course. It's a business. We have to do that. But I I you know I am Stronghold Games. I am not. I am I am the face of the company. And then I'm, I'm you know my name you know, Bonacore and Stronghold almost synonymous now. If you you know you look on Twitter and people talk about me and the company almost in the same breath. Um, I I enjoy that very high touch with gamers. I mean to I I think it's so important um, for. For companies in this industry, because I mean, we're we're all in the industry of creating a social environment. We're creating fun, um, and especially the way I, I talk about the kind of games that I like and everything. I'm a social person. I I want to be out there, so I I'm there at those conventions. And while some a lot of times at Essen, especially, um, I'm taking meetings all the time. But you'll see me the whole time. Even my meetings are kind of open. I have a I have a meeting area, but you'll see, oh there there's Steven back there. He's in his meetings. Uh at at, at the at the other conventions, most of the ones in the US. I'm out there making sales, shaking hands, uh talking about games, doing interviews. Uh I want to be with the gamers. Uh I want them to have a good time. The one thing I tell my staff that's there all the time is that you want everybody to have a good time. To converts to a sale, that's great too. But the most important thing: make gamers have a good time. Make them understand that the brand Stronghold stands for quality, stands for great gaming, uh, and you know I'm there pushing that aspect of the company. So you said that you've created sort of a face for Stronghold Games, which is you. I don't really think any other publisher has done that. I think that you know maybe um, Plat Hat Games has sort of wanted to humanize theirs with their original plaid hat podcast um but i don't really think there's another publisher that has really taken the route that you have do you do you know if there's a reason for that do you think someone else has oh well you mentioned you know plaid but colby's not uh the same kind of person as me but you're right that they did it with their their podcast they kind of they were kind of looking behind the uh curtain a little bit there which is which was nice um some of the smaller publishers uh, kind of have that as well, um, but not to the extent I think that that I've done with Stronghold. But I don't think I've, they've made it a goal either. It sounds to me like you have really, for Stronghold, wanted it to be that you are a face and that you are the person behind Stronghold, as opposed to someone else who's just there isn't <laughs> there isn't much else to it. Um, sure, 
yes, uh, I, it, it was a conscious goal. That's one of the reasons that you know I've I've put myself out there on on like every podcast possible. I I've got the nickname the, the Podfather because I appear on like every gaming podcast that there is. Uh, and uh, to me, the more that uh, you you humanize, um, personalize, maybe is even a better word, the company. The more that people will be like, oh, you know, Bonacre, he's a, he's a real nice guy. I want to, you know, I want to look at Stronghold stuff. But what is, you know, what's Stronghold doing? What, what is that thing? He's a fine chap, that Stronghold. He's a fine chap. I'm a good guy. So they, people want to like look and see what's going on uh, at the company because, you know, they've related to me uh, in on the podcasts and at the conventions and things like that. So, um, yeah, I guess I guess I've done it more than anybody, and in in a lot of ways, I guess it's also helped out quite a bit too so i must be doing something something right uh company's growing uh very very strongly biggest year ever of course everybody's growing i mean it's everybody who's doing good things is growing of course uh with asthma day leading the charge there but um you know I, i've continued to to grow and i think that at least in part that entire the entire growth of stronghold is 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 part and parcel with uh, you know me being out there and being with the gamers so do you ever see yourself taking a less forward role at Stronghold? A less forward role? No. You know, that's funny. Okay, so people have said like, okay, when's Asthma Day going to drive the truck up of money and buy you out? And I, I always laugh at that because I don't think that that's, that's happening in any time in the future. Um, uh, you know, I just, I just don't think I'm the kind of company they would buy. But even if they did, even if somebody did, let's put it that way, even if somebody said, you know, I want to buy out Stronghold um, – uh, I think that the, the the very short answer to would I take a less forward role uh, would be no, because I think that the brand is very strong because of the great games. The brand is also very strong because of my promotion of it. So I'm I'm an asset, I believe. I'm an asset to the company in a marketing role, all you know, right, in a promotion role, and in all of those ways, you know that that makes the company stand out um i think i've helped that portion of it and i like it obviously as we as we've mentioned several times here my social my gregarious my you know type a personality whatever you want to call it you know kind of pushes me out there and makes me push the company forward so the short answer is no i'm staying in the face and i'm going to be out there with the gamers because i'm a gamer too you know that's also part of it you know i'm, I'm i just want to be there with gamers because i'm as big a geek as is that anybody because you just love doing it. I do. I do. And it's a lot of hard work. And it's one of those things that people don't – I don't know that everybody kind of gets. It. Like like it's just all fun and games you know, that this industry. Well, let me tell you. There's a tremendous amount of work to create all of this fun. It really is. This past weekend, we're recording on a, on a Monday morning. And thank you for being accommodating. It's been, it was, was hard getting the schedule. Um, this past weekend. No problem. Um, it, it was – essentially two full days of gaming that sounds like fun right but it was two full days of doing <laughs> brand new games like we tested 40 i don't know if that's the exact number a lot of them we haven't some of them we haven't done yet we brought back like 50 games from Essen plus prototypes we had we've we've tested many of those games this weekend uh and that's a lot of work when you constantly learning a new aim. All right, bring out the next one. Oh, no, no, this one's no good. Let's put this one there. Do another one. Ooh, this one's got some spark. Okay, put this aside. This will be in the short list. And, you know, doing all of that work, yeah, we're gaming, but we're not gaming for like that 
kind of that fun part of it. We're gaming for the work part of it, mm-hmm. which hopefully in the end is going to create something that's really fun for games. No, I can appreciate that. All right. Well, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Julius. It's been great. Anybody who wants to hear more from you, where can they find you? Uh, appreciate that. Uh, that plug there uh strongholdgames.com of course we want you to come over there and see what's um, what the catalog is all about and when our pre-orders are open our pre-order system is really interesting because we we um get it to you before anybody else any new games they get it to you before anybody else and at a discount so you can pre-order a few of our games right now uh we have our own podcast uh it's called board games insider with ignacy chevichek of portal games and stephen bonagor of Strongo games and we talk about the industry inside the news and the stuff that stuff like that what's going on behind the scenes of both companies as well we're very active on twitter at stronghold games so you can go over there and follow us uh and follow us there and and like us over on facebook as well slash stronghold games so thank you julius i really appreciate your time and having me on and um you know keep uh keep on gaming and you know play some games with people too not only solo how's that <laughs> i definitely do if, if you <laughs> right, know much yeah. about me you know that i play a lot both solitaire and um with my own game group here excellent all right thank you so much All right. My pleasure. Thank you for coming on. All right. We're back. So we were talking about some games that uh, are hopefully coming out soon. Some excellent games with Stronghold. But we didn't want to skip on our Kickstarter section. Um, So we have a couple games to look at for Kickstarter today. But first one that I want to mention is one that I told Albert. Now, the, the reason why I missed out on last episode was, for those of you who know, I'm an Orthodox Jew. And we were recording last episode's around the time of uh, a bunch of Jewish holidays, New Year, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, things like that. So I wasn't able to, to get online for recording. Um, so just before the holidays started up, I sent Albert a message about a uh, project that I was that I thought looked really cool called Peacekeepers. And mm-hmm. Albert discussed last time the theme of Peacekeepers was it's sort of like a 4X game in reverse, where instead of... Uh, talking about war it's you're trying to prevent a war you are a peacekeeping body that is trying to act even if the act is to you know forcibly enforce the peace but you're trying to do that with a minimum of casualties and a minimum of damage and balance everything out there now then that is the extent of how much i understand the mechanics because i didn't have a lot of time to research it before i told albert about it um in the end, I had a chance to look into it more, and since that podcast, there's been just a bit of drama that occurred on it, and I felt like you know we should really follow back up on it. That in the end, there were actually no rules that ever got released for Peacekeepers. Um, there may have been some images that were put up about models that they wanted to use, mm-hmm. and in reality, those models, they didn't have the rights to sell. And they were sort of using those for their demo copy and saying that they want to make models like that, but that they hadn't done so yet. And allegedly, allegedly they had an artist that they had hired for a couple pieces and they didn't pay. But I mean, really, as soon as it's up to, they didn't have the rules put out because they didn't have them written well. It should already be a real problem there because that means that there's been no play testing and not enough design and development done on it. So as very interesting as that theme sounds, and as very interesting mm-hmm. as the reverse on it sounds, until there's more out there, it really needs to have a lot more work done and be put back on the burner for another year or something like that until it's really ready to come out. 
So in the end, the guy with a lot of people really, in my opinion, yelling at him and sometimes a not courteous way on Kickstarter decided to pull his project. I don't personally think there was anything malicious going on. I just think that it's someone without an acute business sense or an acute designer sense about how to make a project. And he decided to pull it off. But in the end, it sounds like he, he just decided to cancel the project and is going to try again. He has a deadline of like early 2017 to get this all done by, but I'm hoping Hmm. he has enough sense to realize he's in over his head and talk to some more people about it. But anyway, just following back up on Peacekeepers, I hope to see that theme reused with a very well and elegant design, but um, wasn't for this time around. Hmm. It sounds a shame, like a shame because it really did look like a neat game. But but if if he wasn't over in his head like it sounds, I'm glad he did decide to back out and you know take the time to try and fix it. So with that said, let's talk about some other really interesting games. First one I want to talk about is one by Gil Hova of recent The Network's fame, which we reviewed a uh, not that long ago. I think it was only, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> which we only reviewed like two, three weeks ago. And that's only just going to get cut off from there. And this is another one that's a word game. It's called Wordsy. It's currently on Kickstarter. And the game is relatively inexpensive. It only costs about $19 for the game. And I think that's because it's relatively simple, more like a party-type game, I think. Um, Or a filler-type game. The game works that eight letters are dealt out to the table, and they're all consonants. And consonants being non-vowels, not A, E, I, O, and U. And your goal is to, of those eight letters, come up with as long a word as possible. And you are allowed to skip over any um, vowels or consonants, you're just trying to use as many of the letters on the board as you want. As you can, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And so let's say that CTS were there. If you can make a word with cats, so you'd score some points. If you manage to spell backscattering, which uses more of the letters, you get even more points. So your whole goal is to make as long a word as possible. And when you're playing multiple players, you're racing. Presumably in solitaire, you're only racing yourself with a 30-second timer. Um, And then you take multiple rounds with multiple sets, and whoever has the most points after a set of games wins. Okay. That sounds good. And this is based on an older game, right? Um, I don't remember the name of it. Oh, shoot. Prolix. Prolix, thank you, yes. Which have been published by Z-Man Games. And so this is like a second edition of that, I think. Something like that. He made mm-hmm. it simpler and smoother and easier to scale and better. Better all around. Okay. I remember playing Pro- Prolix 1 solo and I, I didn't enjoy war games. I don't enjoy war games so much, so it was okay. But I do remember it being hard, hard, a hard solo game. Yeah, I'm not such a huge fan of war games myself. Um, but I know that you know there are certainly listeners I'm aware of that do really enjoy word games so i want to bring this attention and it's from gilhova who you know we really really like network so we want to make sure we get this one to mention as well mm-hmm. yep and you've also been doing some stuff with their twitter yeah, a friend of mine was telling me today that he on twitter there you could play the game and you could try it out apparently he's made an app that works with twitter like a bot or something and you could play against the bot 
unfortunately, my friend said it's a little bit too good at this game because it was primed with a really big dictionary. So it knows a lot of big, hard words. <laughs> so so you'll get a sense for how to play, but you're going to get beat, is, my, is the, what I took out of it. Deadly. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also the Twitter, the point of it is to teach you, no? Yeah. I don't know. To teach you and humiliate you. No. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't played. I'm just passing on rumors, really. But but it is out there. So, so if you're curious about it, you can go on Twitter and try it out. Yeah, I'm looking at the Twitter. The best word I could find was intercomprehensibility and combinatorially. Okay, those Straight yeah, those are not words I would write. Oversubscribing it sounds like my podcast feeds. <laughs> yeah, nice. But it seems like you can also compete with everyone else because whoever gets the highest word um, can reply and get posted up. Ah, so it's not just against the bot. Interesting. It's not just it. It, it shows you the highest that you can possibly get, but you can post back to it, and it looks like you get a half hour to post back to it, and if you get it. So you say you got it, and you text it back, and you win. Okay, that's cool. And you have a half hour to think about it, so that's not bad. That'll so be you're fighting against the world. Mm-hmm. Although it looks like it may be down for a bit. Okay. Yeah. Well, that is neat yeah, that, that he did that, that he made a, a version you could play online against other people just to try it out. That's really yeah, neat. Seriously. I haven't seen anybody else do that. Seriously. That's pretty mm-hmm. cool. All right, so that's Wordsy. Again, $19, and it's going to be finishing up. And I think we discussed, Albert, where it is that you can find that on the page. It's, it's going to be finishing up on November 30th. Below, below the button. Yes, below the button. There it is. Huh, okay. <laughs> and so we got one more? Uh, so the second one I was going to talk about is called Expelled. And I really want to bring this one up because it's pretty unique. This is a and this is X spelled as an E X S P E L L E D. So that's X as an ex wife and spelled as in you've been casting spells. Um, and it's a joke because you got expelled from school. Is <laughs> is the play on words that it's doing? You got expelled from other magical schools and you've been brought to this uh, sort of below grade um, school where. The wands don't work so great <laughs> because this is a book that is a do-it-yourself game where you're going to be um, paper crafting items and weapons out of paper. And you're going to cut them apart and put them together and paste them onto your character. And uh, and you use that to continue your your role-playing thing and you build up your, your guy in order to take it through the process of this game. And that just mm-hmm. sounded so neat to me. Mm-hmm. And you, you make your own wands and everything like out of paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. And I don't, I, I don't personally know a lot about how the rules of it work because I can never see myself being crafty enough to do that. I mean, that it could be, that's unfair to say that, not having actually tried it. And it even says like here, you don't need to be that crafty and you don't need to be that creative. You know, you don't even need to know how to draw a stick figure, but you have to love to color and create and cut and paste. And the game encourages it. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. Yeah. Anybody could do this. It's super accessible. 
it, it sounds like it's super accessible. I just, I can't imagine me trying it. It could be that if I were to try it, I would think it's awesome and a lot of fun, but that, mm-hmm. that is, that is really unique. It, I, I so wish this would be a, available in time for the holidays coming up. Yeah, that would be neat. <laughs> That'd be fast also. Well, so this is cool. You know, I think my kids would love this. Yeah. And I think I might too. So is it reusable? Do you need one per person? Uh, I think that you, when you get it, you get a whole bunch of sheets. Okay. And then you can get the um, extra character pack that comes with the thi- with the book of it. And so you can get extra ones and refill it. But I think it's not, lim- it's not limitlessly reusable. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, very so cool. They, I'm going to check this one out yeah. more. You do that. You result back. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll let you do the. I'll let you do the review of that one then. Okay. So that is expelled, and again, just so that you know how much this sort of stuff costs. This one, if you're looking for just the book and self, um, which comes also with a character pack, a wand, and the print and play, it is fifteen dollars, and it's going to be ending on November thirtieth. Also, and Albert, you had one more. Yes, and so I had one more. This is a. This is actually an interview I did with uh, the designer of Luminous Ages, Anthony Christou. Um, this is a it's a trading card game, I guess, like a CCG sort of thing, and it could be played cooperatively or solitaire or competitively. Um, the game the game's got really nice looking art. So so listen to the interview and find out more directly from the designer. I am here today with Anthony Christou, um, designer and creator of Luminous Ages. Hi, Anthony. How are you doing? Good, Albert. And how are you? Doing great. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to come talk to me. It has been actually pretty hard to, to get this toward. First of all, I'm terrible keeping up with Facebook, so you had made posts that I had totally missed. And, That's all right. And then we're dealing with time zone issues, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> we're yeah. half a world apart. I'm, I'm from Australia, the land of the koala and kangaroo, so... You know, I had to jump out of my gum tree and <laughs> and <laughs> fight off fight off the kangaroos and the snakes and try and get this podcast done. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So so we are you're talking about a game you currently have on Kickstarter. Um, yes. When this airs, it'll probably still have about a week left. Um, the game mm-hmm. is Luminous Ages. Yep. Can you tell us about the game a little bit about the Kickstarter? Yeah, for sure. Um, Luminous Ages comes from a comic book series, so um, the comic's been around for about two years, and it's a comic, or it's the world, the universe itself. It's it's a dream filled universe with dream magic, and it's about um, characters that have the power to control dream magic and summon monsters to fight by their side. The planet that they're on is under threat from uh, the evil Nightmare Alliance, or they're called the the Mare or Mare, and they're evil, basically bent on hoarding all the dream energy for themselves through the resources they kill. They kill off, you know, magical dragons and people, and and they're just bent on destroying anything good and natural in the world. And the good guys are fighting back, um, trying to protect themselves. Kind of like an analogy, what's happening with the world now with corpor- corporations, <laughs> so trying mm-hmm. to destroy everything. And um, 
yeah, so it's kind of got that whole... Uh, people liken it to Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, um, the comic book reviewers. And um, and the game is set up like that as well. Um, the game is is a kind of a resource management game. It was It's designed um, as a tabletop card game. And it's also, um, I suppose, a PvP game um, where you can build up a deck and fight off your opponent. You don't attack your opponent directly. You attack their lands. It's like a resource management and army building game. But the um, tabletop card game is, is I mean, the, all the modes are really exciting. There's many ways you can play it. But the one way is uh, one player. Um, one, and uh, I mean, it's that's the dragon mode. And um, that can be played as a team, or you can play it like a dragon solitaire on your own. And what happens is there's a dragon god. Um, you can, if you've it's good enough, you might be able to take down two dragon gods. But um, you have one dragon god. Um, it spawns. It has like a general in front of it defending it. It, um, you, the dragon god draws a card every turn, and you have a turn to bring out your, I suppose your land, build up your base put soldiers on their quest you've got a few things you can do in your turn and build up your army slowly and, and the first three a few turns it's just survival um, basically in the team player mode you have every three turns a dragon god comes out but when you're playing one player we recommend that you only play one dragon god because otherwise it can get really really hard um, and or sometimes we recommend have six turns with the first dragon and then if you feel that's too easy by the sixth turn, then bring out another dragon god and, and that dragon god will draw two cards per turn and that dragon god has two generals defending it. And they have 30 life each dragon god and you've got to bring their, their life down to zero, um, obviously within within as fast as you can. And um, because their army just gets bigger and bigger every turn, yours gets bigger as well. You can quest, you know, roll a die to quest. You can... Uh, on your quests, you can bring back other minions to help you out. Uh, you can you obviously draw cards from your hand. Um, it's not like Magic the Gathering or other games where you're always top decking. I don't know if you're familiar with that, top decking, that word. Uh, no, I don't know that too. Um, it's kind of like when you have, a, um, when basically you p play your whole hand in the first three or four turns and you're waiting mm -hmm. to waiting for your next card to draw like you're always waiting for, oh, the, for gotcha. yeah, so the top you of your deck to draw yeah whereas this game the lands are out already you have five bases you you bring that you can bring them out one per turn so that's your resources are coming out all the time and you have you really all you need is dreamlands you can buy dream structures they're on the field to purchase which improve your resources like it give you more dream magic and so your hand is full and you've got that many cards. You can only bring out one or two a turn. So you've got, you know, at least six or seven turns where you're not top decking. There's also, you're always questing. So you can always bring out a token creature without even having to use creatures from your deck. If you've run out of cards in your hand, you've always got options. Um, and there's, there's so many options. You know, you can choose different structures and different strategies. There's about six different st structures in the game, and there's four different quests at the moment. Um, we are on Kickstarter right now. Um, we are 66% funded, and I'd really love to see it hit really high goals because we've we've planned so many amazing stretch goals, and um, 
you know, like extra cards, extra token cards, types of token cards, extra quest lands. I've got some really nice quest lands. I'd like to see not just four quests that we have now at the moment, but maybe six or seven. So that way, you know, we have a high seas quest and and the different quest lands where you put your characters, your quest characters on there. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I suppose um, we're going to um, expand next year, hopefully to have a leveling up system. So the quest characters you have at the moment, um, they um, they can be custom made as well. Like we've got fans that have purchased a commission and they actually get to have their own character design, the artwork, the, the design. The abilities are set based on your color. Um, we can tweak a few abilities as long as they're not overpowered. Um, like say if someone says, I want to be an angel and instead of gaining life, I want to, like my instead of my character gaining life, I want it to maybe... Um, give another creature on the field shield one of the white white abilities um so you can just swap out an ability but we, we're not gonna like obviously we're not gonna if someone commissions a character that they they want to have created in the game that's based on their name or a DD &D character that they've got or whatever we can't like give them like 10 abilities because it's just not that's rigged <laughs> so obviously uh, the abilities are set but you can you can swap out an ability for another ability so instead of getting life you may want to have shield because that's what white has or you may want to give dream allegiance to a character on the field or whatever the white abilities are that are available so um yeah um that's I hope cool. That, yeah, I hope the that game really, mm. Yeah, yeah, it does. The game sounds really, really fleshed out already. It's not like you're you're still designing and testing. Oh no, 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 no. Um, the game has been around for a year, man. So, uh, I, I, it's actually been, I've been working and testing it since late last year, around about November last year. I was like, the comic was going so well, and it's been selling out in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, which is great the land of the hobbits they love it <laughs> <laughs> and um i just was like i've always loved games and i've always wanted to make a card game i grew up playing hero quest magic the gathering um this it pretty much any board game i could get a hand of a hand a handle of at my you know family parties i just i love card games and board games and all that and I would love to make like a board game one day like i could see this potentially becoming a miniatures game but at the moment, I don't have the resources or funds to do that. And for me, the, the next easiest thing was to make a card game, having loved, you know, Pokemon, Magic, all the card games that are out now. I was just like, yeah, I think card game is my best option. Being an, an illustrator as well, it was like easier to create art. And I've got friends that work for Magic the Gathering. I'm friends with John Silver, who um, works for Magic mm -hmm. at the moment. And um, John Silver was just like... Uh, yeah i'd love to work for you and and obviously i'm hiring him you know i don't expect people to do stuff for free for me um everyone that's on the project is get is paid or getting paid about to be paid you know this month so um and so yeah at the end of the day it was just you know for me it was a natural progression to make a game i love i love comic books i love card games and i just really wanted to do this is what a project I really wanted to do. And so it's been a year in development. It's been testing. And we did actually, last week, people were like, oh, I hate trading card games, you know, and we are not that, you know, we're not just a trading card game. And I love, I do like t TCGs, but we would we designed the game initially to be a tabletop card game. The Dragon Mode is a standalone game. You know, it's a game where you can 
just buy Dragon Mode in a box for $50. You get 120 cards, maybe more if we hit a stretch goals. Um, you get dice. You and get, that's $50 Australian. That's $50 Australian dollars, so it's a bit cheaper in the US, of course. Um, it'd be okay. maybe 40 American or something. Obviously, there's shipping, you know, whatever the shipping is, but we've reduced the shipping is quite affordable um, because we're using a company overseas to do it all um, from China. So, um, but yeah, the great thing about it is is we've been testing it for ages. The Dragon Mode I've been testing, uh, I can test that on my own because it's a one player game, you know, mm-hmm. and. You know, initially it was really, really hard. It was like Dark Souls. You ever heard of the game Dark Souls? Video game Dark Souls? Yes. Yes. So it was like that. It was like, oh my God, I'm not winning. You know, like this is like a one in 10 chance of winning. <laughs> and I liked that. But I was like, nah, that's way too hard. So we included the quest characters. We made the dream structures available on the field. Um, and we just, we we basically said that you can change the deck as well. So if you want to add... Uh, remove creatures dream creatures out of there if you want to um, have more lands you can do that in your main deck in the main deck that you and the dragon draw for from um, or, and you can also say that if the dragon draws a spell the spell doesn't affect you but you can use the spells against the dragon so there's things like that you can tweak you can always make it easier um, I think Geek Mum reviewed Dragon Mode um, and she's a big reviewer in Australia and I, I there's a lot of people like obviously there's people you pay for reviews uh, when you make a tabletop game I did not pay her and she loved the game like the children were like oh I want to play this next week you know um, like they, 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 they couldn't win but then they're like no we want to figure out how to win you know and you can win we've won the game um, a few you can you win the game maybe I think it's about a uh, about a 60% chance of winning you know 65 okay um, not bad yeah, and it is based on skill. It's based on your decisions you make as well. Obviously, there's always luck with any games. Um, but if if you are a really good player, you're going to notice as you get better at the game, you're going to be able to defeat the Dragon Gods and you're going to want to up, up the difficulty as you go with the game. But yeah, it, it's been a game. It's been a year in development. The game is done. Um, there's always things we can add to it. You know, there's always things that we may go, uh, some rule changes or... We, uh, you know, there might be some abilities we add in later on down the track, or maybe we'll release campaign cards that you can print and play. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I'm looking at always increasing the value. And I know people like always want more. And so even if you've bought the game and next year, and next year we release a campaign card set, it'll be a print and play. People could download for free um, and you just print them yourself, or you could purchase them if you so desired for a cheap fee, you know. So I... Um, yeah, and there's also the PvP mode, Dragon, the Dragon Box itself. You can buy that. You can play it as a deck builder. You know, a deck building game where you have all mm-hmm. the you have like piles of cards on the on the table. You start with a very minimal hand. You have only a 14 card deck, and you verse your opponent. And it's a different aim. The aim is to get to 30 Dream Life to summon a Dragon God and beat your opponent to summoning the Dragon God. And you got to keep it out for three turns. So even the standalone box, if you have got a friend around and you want to verse them, you can play the deck building mode. That actually um, was always in the works, but we finished it off during the Kickstarter campaign, like just now. Um, we've been meet myself and Rob Richardson, who's a design, a game designer and artist himself, who's 
done some amazing projects I can't talk about because he's been on some big things, Rob Richardson. <laughs> um, he's he's from Florida and he's been working with me designing the game over Skype and we've been friends for years. He's been working for the, for, like being friends with me for years and has kind of worked for me on and off um, doing art and designs with me. So yeah, it's it's been a game that's a long time coming, um, a year in development beta testing we've got volunteers testing the game in australia um in my state there's maybe where i live it's probably about five beta testers that just love the game they just keep on wanting to play it you know like i don't have to give them anything like they just come around and if i say hey guys we've been doing a beta testing night uh, three or four people and girls as well i'd say we've got women love the game as well which is great because it's got a cooperative game mode, because it can be one player or cooperative, mm-hmm. um, it's really an inclusive game, you know, um, and, uh, and, and it really allows for, say, someone that's not a big gamer, whether they're a guy or a girl, it doesn't matter, <laughs> but say someone who doesn't play guard card games often, that if you play the cooperative dragon mode, you can guide them through that and you can work together, you can show each other your hand and work out together, how can we take down two dragon gods or three dragon gods together you know and so it's you know obviously it's been a a lot of work but also a lot of fun at the same time i mean i i really can't think of anything else i'd be doing on the weekends anyway that you know i'd probably be playing video (laughs) games or something so Mm -hmm. so i've been playing my own game you know so which is kind of weird it's very weird because um you obviously like you're harder on yourself when you're designing a game i'm just like oh it's got to be good and like i've it's hard to say i i like the game and everyone that plays it tends to like i've had about a 70 to 80 percent success ratio with like people buying it at shows at comic con so 70 to 80 percent of people that play the game want to buy it you know and they're grabbing it and um so for me it's like it's really weird because you i'm the designer of a game and and I played a lot of games, but it's I've, I'm enjoying the process of designing and adding to the game as we've and tweaking it and making it better. But it's very hard to enjoy your own game when you're making it. Do you understand? Like I don't know if you've designed a game before, yeah. but it's like yeah, I haven't. But I work with databases, and I have the same issue. You know, even with that, where, where like I make something, it's like I, I'm more critical of, it, of what I've made. Than yeah. Because you're being, you got critical brain on. It's very hard to kind of go, mm-hmm. sit back and just play a game and go. I'm just going to enjoy it. Because you're always thinking, ah, oh, I could add this to the game, or yeah. you're always thinking, ah, oh, I didn't, I want to change this or whatever. But it's gotten to the point now where like everything's done. Like I said, it's been a year in development, and I'm like pretty happy with it. And you know, anything that comes up that's an issue with the game is very minor. Um, but it's, it's all been right. bug tested and it's a pretty damn cool game so yeah uh, any other questions yeah, yeah sorry do you find it hard to go from a from a like a comic designer to a board game design and back and forth in the same world um it's really um yes yes in terms of switching off your brain from narrative going from a narrative comic book creator and then going to someone who's got to use mathematics and make sure that a game is balanced it's a different mindset one's narrative is very visual and very story driven you know and you're using your language skill set but 
um, when you're doing a game, you've got to think about mathematics. You've got to think about, you know, mm-hmm. is this too overpowered? Um, it's really cool because the narrative of the game, you know, it's about dream magic and a dream world. So anything can happen in the game. You know, I mean, obviously there's rules like, you know, there's lands and bases, there's zones, like you build up a base, a core, you put a dream structure, you put a dream land on it, you upgrade zones and you attack people's bases. So I suppose the the narrative has dictated gameplay in a way because, you know, if I was a dragon god, I can't attack another dragon god in in the game unless I'm being summoned into reality, you know. So it, it, that's how the story works. So, you know, these dream mages, they're all, once they accumulate enough dream magic in the universe, they eventually will summon the dragon gods and bring them into their reality to fight and take control in either good way or a bad way either defend their own lands and protect it and, and just win the game or you know not win the game but in the comic book they would you know they protect the zone and and defend good and justice or if they're evil they would attack and be aggressive so yeah it, the narrative has a dictated gameplay and a lot and um but the great thing about it is because it is a dream universe you can bend the rules a bit you can break some rules because it's a dream world you know anything can go to a degree (laughs) but there is obviously in the gameplay you have your dream zone you know your dragon god your quest creatures you can place things in the dream zone there's reality so we've our gaming mat is set up like that so you have reality and the dream area so and different mechanics happens because of that so you know a lot of people obviously people always going to compare you to games like magic the gathering and i think that yeah one the pvp mode the player versus player where you build your own, you buy lots of boosters and you build a really strong deck of course it's going to be like pokemon or magic because it's a player versus player game it's a tcg it has a tcg version right um so obviously there's going to be things that are similar to to any other tcg but there are so many things that are different about us we have dice where you you can go on quests so it has an rpg element you know you, you can go questing you can um, obviously you don't have to summon your characters on the field you can put them in the dream zone so and then bring them out when you're ready if your opponent is is got some some cards that are affecting things that are that are going to be detrimental to the cards in your hand um, there's I suppose um, re- the resource dream magic is a prism color so you can have a multicolored deck you know so yeah there's a lot of things when you talk about the the dream world and all that, is this somehow related to that Australian the Aboriginal Dreamtime? Um, actually, funny you mentioned that. Um, yes. Um, well, it, it's actually um, the whole mythology of the game. Well, it's it's uh, there's this other planet, like mm-hmm. Equatoria is another planet. It's basically one of the first planets that was ever created in the Big Bang after the first Big Bang. Um, so you have to read the comic to kind of get an idea of it. Um, like, but instead of the Big Bang, what happened was, well, the Big Bang was 13 gods colliding with each other, you know, in the ancient, in the dawn of time, you know. Okay. So that's that's the, that's our version of the Big Bang. So we have nine. There was nine dragon gods: the Arch Luminary, the Arch Chosen Mage, and the Arch Captivary Mage. These are kind of humanoid-like gods that. And the dragon gods and the beast god. There's like 13 type of gods that all collided with each other to create um, the dream universe and reality and the universe as we know it. And um, so what happens is on their planet, they end up, say, 
sometimes dragons may escape from Equatoria and the Dream World and they teleport through Dreamtime portals to Earth and they enter the different ages of mythology on Earth. So it explains why there was magic. There's why why there was magic back in ancient times, why dragons existed, why all this kind of crazy stuff happened. Like even Greek mythology. My background is I'm from Greek. I'm Greek Cypriot. So we, like people of Cyprus, we have a lot of um, links to Greek, Egyptian, mm -hmm. uh, Syrian mythology, all that region. So it's inspired by all of that. I mean, even Egyptian and Greek gods. The, the, there's three gods of dreams. There's you know the god of Hypnos, which is sleep, Thanatos, which is death, and the god of Oniro, which is dream. And our dream world is called Oniro, based on the dream god in Greek. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So those three gods are all connected. Sleep, death, and dreaming is all one, pretty much three brothers uh, or cousins or whatever, and they're all connected in Greek mythology. But... Um, funny you mention that I'm in Australia. We have obviously the Aboriginal culture. Um, you know, the, we call the a lot of the the culture refers to themselves as the First Nation people, the First Australians. Mm -hmm. um, they have the dream, the dreaming. They call it. It's a living story. It's not even mythology. It's not. It's probably dishonourable to say it's a mythology because it's still a living religion. It's a not even a religion. It's a living. Uh, dream dreaming they just call it the dreaming it's a living story pretty much that's how they refer to it a living story and um i'm actually working with i'm friends with with a, two ladies and a gentleman um in sydney there's three people that i'm working with that where we're going to have i've got my own world and i'm creating my own comic where the heroes will eventually enter Australia in the dream time and um which is great so they're going to be writing an episode and I would just my heroes would come in and and you know come and save Australia or the planet from destruction as well so um which is pretty awesome and I'm pretty honored to be able to facil facilitate that and help and create you know bring those stories to life because um I suppose a lot of the time it gets you know being the problems that have ha historically happened here in Australia it's been horrific with what's happened mm -hmm. to to you know the culture here the first australians so to speak um you know what's happened so i think it's you know i think it'd be great to highlight i suppose the the i suppose the culture and and really educate the youth and show people to teach people about this culture and the dreaming and and their stories and and that's really what I want to do. So these side issues, I'm doing it in partnership with them. Um, and um, it's, you know, obviously it's under there. It's basically up to them to write it and develop it. And I'm just there to do the art and, and I suppose help them make it look good and improve it and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so that's exciting. That's really exciting. So yeah, It is really cool. So, so let me, if, uh, if somebody wants to know about the comic book, where, where would they go? Okay, so you can start reading the comic for free, um, luminousages.com, um, uh, L-U-M-I-N-O-U-S, ages.com. So you can start reading that for free. Um, we have the link to Kickstarter on the website there. Mm-hmm, okay. So... Um, and you can actually get see the Kickstarter and, and get the game from there. But um, we've just got first issue available for free. Um, we finished second issue. Um, 
and I suppose like because we're doing so much after this now that the game's done um, we'll, uh, hopefully we, we hit our full goal by the time you've published this we'll be at the we'll, we'll have hit our goal but um, once the game's done like yes it has a trading card game element but we're not going to really be um, we, we will obviously expand the game but we're going to be doing expansions or releasing I suppose extra cards probably every two or three years as the comic book grows so we've done the first few issues we want to wait we really want to get a whole season done of the comic in the next two years that's our goal and um and and we can then use that artwork whatever concept art we've done whatever paintings we could we've done illustrations to promote the comic we can then expand the game with and and you never know i mean the game dragon mode may be upgraded you know there may may be a different type of game i don't know <laughs> like but the whole goal the, the whole goal is even if you buy the game now um no matter what up- upgrades or expansions come out or different boosters come out it will only add to the game that you've got it will only you know improve what you've got we're never going to phase out cards or like you know we're not going to do the whole magic the gathering things where after a year you have to update and buy a whole new set. I don't believe that, in that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that pretty much is what killed it for me. <laughs> and that's exactly the same for me. Yeah. Um, so I want to, even if you buy more, you know, if you decide you want to buy more, um, you're basically adding to your collection and you you can swap out cards and make your dragon deck better. Your dragon solitaire might be a better one player game or, you know, it, it may be, it may have more options, you know, but at the moment there's only 110 cards in the series. Um, in Dragon Mode, you get about 75 of them anyway on the, on the, in the standalone tabletop game and the boosters, you can buy boosters um, and that, and that they are random, but you get that, that there you get a chance of getting the very, the different cards. Um, but you're not penalized by not getting boosters. You know, there's, there's no penalty there. So yeah, you know, it's just cool. only if you want to add more cards to your deck, you know, if you really want that, it's optional. But we have a deal anyway for $100 $100 Australian you get Dragon Mode and you get 10 boosters with it as well. So okay. which is pretty good deal. Works out to like uh I don't know, I think it's like $5 a booster or less, something like that. Mm-hmm. Australian dollars. <laughs> yeah. So it's really cheap. Cool, okay. Um, yeah. Very cool. Okay. Well, well, thank you for sharing all this with me. Um, I, I hope the campaign does really well. I'm, I'm excited to learn more about this and the the, uh, the whole Luminous Ages sounds really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I've really enjoyed the looking at your art, especially the, the landscapes you've made. Thank you. Thank you very much. Really, really great looking art. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, thank you for having me on the show. Hi, everybody. All right, so that was, in fact, our third interview of the show. Um, that's a new I record for us. I think that's it for us for the show. Yeah. Ever. No, maybe not ever. No, not ever. <laughs> that's all the interviews for the show, because now we're going to actually talk about some games, or one game in particular. All right, and I've been looking forward to hearing about this game, because I want to know more about it. It looks really interesting. This is Freedom, the Underground Railroad. And which is by Academy Games. Freedom the Underground Railroad has um, a very unique theme. It's a historical-themed game set in the time of slavery. And the idea of the game is it's a co-op game, and you, the players, are working uh, 
to undermine, I guess is really the best term, but to undermine and abolish slavery. And in terms of undermining, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get these slaves free. You're trying to rescue them from the plantations, escort them up north, dodging slave catchers, send them into Canada, and simultaneously collect up enough support for the abolitionist cause in order to get enough support that abolition should be passed and that slavery should be undone. This is a co-op game, so nobody is ever on the sides of pro-slavery in the course of this game. Everyone is all fighting against slavery. And I think that when they made that theme, they did it in a very tasteful and good way to sort of represent it. And I think this is probably the most important thing to be talking about this. Maybe after the elections, being politically correct is less important, but... (laughs) Just because whenever you're talking about something like this, it was a time that under, you know, modern ethics was a not ethical thing to have done. And because of that, you have to be very tasteful when you do it. And like, I know I've heard other people joke about it. And, you know, the slave tokens of this one, they're actual uh, unpainted wood cubes that represent the slaves. And over the course of the game, those unpainted wood cubes will be put on market cards and then be moved onto the plantation spaces on the board. And then you as the player will get to escort them through the cities North into Canada. And then you'll either put them on the slave freed area, or if a slave is lost for one reason or another, it goes in the slave lost section, which in my mind is, I guess, equal to slave killed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are represented by neutral wood cubes. They're not represented by black meeples, which, you know, I've heard other people joke about. I don't think that's a funny joke in my opinion, but I think that by making it so that everyone was playing co-op and that the bad guys are the game, I feel like they really took a very tasteful perspective on it. Yeah, I agree. And similar to how I enjoy um, Lewis and Clark and how they really interwove all of the historical things about it, you know, they they have flavor text on it and it comes with a flyer about the Underground Railroad Museum and a lot of information about abolition and all of the events and everything in it is from the actual times. And the left half of the board is an homage to a popular newspaper of the time called the North Star. So they really very much built up the flavor of the time, and they kept it very tasteful, and they kept it very respectful. And I really appreciate how they approached that theme. So they get definite thumbs up, and I'm pretty sure that they they did that very consciously. I know that one of the goals, or I believe that one of the goals when they were designing the game was to make it something that can be used to teach something that can be used to help people, you know, interact with and experience what was occurring at those times and to, you know, sort of allow kids, I guess, to get some sort of experience with that. And I think that the way they did that by having it be a cope and by having one and, and by approaching that tastefully really helps both bring in that theme without being, you know, striking or, or, improper in any way Mm -hmm. i understand that they 
they had published some books that people could get. I don't know if you have to purchase them or what, but to help educators use the game in classroom settings and to guide you through that. Actually, I heard that today on a different podcast I was listening to, and they were talking about the game. Okay. It was interesting. They were talking about uh, using games for education. Okay. So it came up. Very neat. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not familiar with those books. Uh, I'm n- not an educator, uh, other than you know teaching my own children and trying to make sure that you know they're getting the best they can. So this was not developed. I did not play it with an eye for how I would use it in the classroom, but I was looking at it with an eye for how I would you know expose my kids about it. And my daughter, who's only six, had never heard of slavery before I pulled this out. And I mentioned before that. I will play solo games and my daughter will come along and want to play with me. And it's still a solo game just for the <laughs> bit more randomness. <laughs> so she had never heard of the theme of slavery and I approached it and I, you know, tried, tried really to explain it. So I think that potentially for someone this young, they don't really get it from the game, but for someone older, it's interesting. I think to, to be involved in it when you're learning about it. So <clears throat> that's about the theme of the game. Um, let's talk about the mechanics of the game for a bit. In terms of the mechanics of the game, there's going to be uh, sets of phases for how you play through the game. The goal of the game is to rescue a certain number of um, slaves and send them and get them off to Canada, and at the same time, buy enough support for abolition. And buying of support for abolition is done by spending money to buy support tokens. Each support token costs you $10. So you'll have to trade in, or whatever the currency is, 10 monies. So you have to trade in those 10 monies to get support tokens. If you've done that before the game has ended for one reason or another then you will have succeeded in the game. The game can end in various ways. There's going to be a set of market cards that are going to be on the other side of the board, and these market cards are actually going to scale the different player counts. So at lower player counts, less slaves are going to be coming onto the board, and at higher player counts, more slaves come to the board. Um, And similarly, the goals scale based on the number of players. You'll need to rescue more slaves in higher player counts than you would in lower player counts. So there's market cards on the right side of the board. Um, And there's eight per game. If you have dealt out all of the market cards, so eight rounds have passed by, and you still haven't won the game, then you lose the game. So there is no ninth round. You just lose. If too many slaves are lost, which is scaled by player count, then you lose the game. Hmm, That sounds easy, then. I guess that depends upon what difficulty level you have and what you consider easy. There's actually um, a number of variants in the back of the rule book to make the game a little bit easier or a little bit harder. In addition, you can flip over the gold tokens to say that you need more slaves freed or less slaves lost to get success or victory, respectively. Uh, Success or loss, respectively, rather. So you can make the game harder on yourself, um, which is definitely a plus for me in any co-op game. I always like it when the co-op games give you a way to scale the difficulty. But it's not a complex mechanically game in order to be able to understand how to win. No. Okay. So that is your goal of the game. <clears throat> in the various phases of the game, so the game is going to take place over 
each round you'll have a number of phases. There are going to be slave catchers, which are going to be running out of the board, and there's five of them, each with a different color and shape. And the different shape is to make it colorblind friendly. And there's going to be two slave catcher dice that are associated with those slave catchers. If a slave ever moves into a slave cannot move into a spot with the slave catcher, and if a slave catcher ever moves on to a slave spot, it'll capture the slave and send him back to the market card, so he'll come back to the plantations later. The first phase of the game is going to be you roll those slave catcher dice, and it's going to likely move one of the five slave catchers around. Now then you could roll the symbol and none of them will move. Or you could roll it and they'll go halfway across the board and catch another slave that you thought was really safe. So that'll move things around. That'll really uh, make the randomness of how those slave catchers move change for you. The next phase is going to be the planning phase. So in this phase, everyone gets to take two tokens from the token board. Tokens are what are what one of the main things that lets you take actions at the top of the board, there's going to be sets of tokens and they're actually split up by the different eras. There's era one, era two and era three. Um, and that's actually an interesting division for it. The first era is from the 1800s till 1839. The second era is 1840 until 1859. And the second, when the third era is 1860 to 1865. So the first era is 40 years. The second era is 20 years. And the third era is five years. I'm not enough of a historian to know if that makes sense. Maybe that does. Mm -hmm. I thought that was weird because <laughs> I don't think the third era is, in terms of how the game plays so much shorter, but in times of, in terms of how long it is, it's shorter. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. really know how, I don't really know if that made sense from a history perspective. No idea. Um, go ahead. Yeah. I say, I don't know either. I imagine they wouldn't have done that though, if it wasn't based on some history, you know, cause they, they could have picked any date range, right. And it would have been entirely arbitrary. No idea. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not enough of a historian to know, but I, I assume it's historical because I assume that once abolition really started going, things started moving faster, which is how history tends to happen. So I assume it's based on the history of it. But anyway, you don't really need to know the dates other than it's in first period, second period, and third period. So during the planning phase, you can buy some of the tokens in the currently active period or in any previously active period. And periods become active when all previous support tokens have been bought. So you can buy support tokens, and they cost $10. They give you no other benefit other than they advance you towards the win condition of the game, and they allow you to open up, if you collect all of them, the next period columns. The other type of token you can buy are conductor tokens, and what these do is they let you move slaves along paths. These are the main way that you move slaves along paths. And this is how you're going to be pushing slaves along routes north. On the board, you're going to have spaces for the plantation, and then scattered throughout the board are various other cities where slave catchers will be moving around and where the slaves can move north along, or south along, if you want to try and backtrack some. So you can spend these conductor tokens to in a different in the action phase, which we haven't got to, but you can spend these conductor tokens to move slaves along a path heading north. And so like one would let you move three cubes, three slaves, one spot, or one might let you spend uh, move two slaves, two spots. So you can buy those cubes, and those cubes cost money. 
The third type of token that you can buy are fundraising tokens. And fundraising tokens do not cost anything, but they are probably the biggest way you're going to be earning money. And each one works a bit differently, but essentially you earn some money for each slave in a city of the right color. And each it depends on what it is. So essentially you're trading it in, you're earning some money for having slaves in various spots on the board. So everyone all together can coordinate which tokens they're going to be getting and how they're going to be spending it. And so that's all done together. So the next phase is the action phase. And in the action phase is when you get to start using those tokens or a couple other actions. Now then, note that when you use the conductor tokens or anything else that move slaves, like I said, a slave catcher will move closer to you. Almost all of the cities have paths that the slave catchers will travel across, and those paths go from east to west. When you move on to a spot, and you move each slave one at a time, if it's on a slave catcher track, all the slave catchers will start moving towards them, and if they hit another slave, they'll capture them and send them back to the market. Um, and so you have to be careful when you move it. Now, then some actions you might take let you move without moving slave catchers, but usually you're going to be moving slave catchers around the board, and you may be intentionally trying to do that to open up slots for other slaves to sort of sneak around the back way while they can. So during the action phase, you can play either a conductor token or a fundraising token or a second one of those. You may only ever use, unless something special has come up, two tokens on one turn. There will also be abolitionist cards. On the bottom of the left side of the board is an abolitionist queue. There are going to be five cards, abolitionist cards, that are across the bottom of the deck. Now, and some of these cards are permanents, and you can sort of hold on to them. They're reserves, and play them later for an extra benefit, and some will reserve immediately. But some in that abolitionist queue are bad. They are red cards. They are evil, and they do all sorts of horrible things. And they have lost a great many games for me. Evil red cards. <laughs> and some of those you can buy to get rid of in order to, to stop them. Otherwise, all the abolitionist cards that are not bought will move on down, and some of them will get discarded at the end of the round. But you can buy those and either get the benefit or get rid of the negative if that's something you can do with that. Um, so that's one other thing you do during the action phase. Now then, each player also has a roll card. The roll cards give you two primary benefits. You have a benefit that occurs every round. That benefit is usually earn some money, and take some other once-per-round ability, like move tokens around or take another action, things like that. Um, so you can get that benefit, or you can use a roll card's one-time special ability, which is a super good action. What's interesting is that after you use a special ability, you flip over a card. For some of the rolls, your card gets better once you've taken the special ability. For others of the cards, your card gets worse once you take the special ability. So some of the cards, you want to use that special ability as soon as you can, and you're sort of pressured to do so as soon as you can. Other of those, you want to do it as late as you can. And each time with one of those, because I knew it, I mean, you can turn it over and see which one it is, I was always feeling like pressured. I don't want to use it, but I need to use it right now. But if I use it right now, I may need it more later. <laughs> that that push always pushed me, and I appreciated that it got better or worse because it meant I wasn't totally free to do it whenever I liked. I wanted to use it as soon as possible, so I was very much being pushed to either use it or not use it and had to 
almost really want to use it to use it early or late. Mm-hmm. That sounds like it, it make it gives you interesting choices. It does help having interesting choices. It really does. Mm -hmm. So those are all the things you could do during the action phase. And just to summarize, you can use the benefit on your roll card, use the special ability on your roll card, play up to two tokens, and then buy and resolve one abolitionist card. So those are the things you do during the action phase. What what kind of rolls do you have in in this game? Tasteful rolls. Um, (laughs) um, There's like the stockholder, the shepherd... Those sort of roles. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes. Stockholders and Shepherds, of course. I mean, I can go to the, <laughs> no, okay. the box. So the, no, it's fine. These are people that were, were helping the the slaves migrate north in some way or another. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so these are like generic people. They're not, they're not named people, so they're not named personalities. You know, it's not like Abraham Lincoln is here or someone like that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know enough of the name personalities <laughs> or... Levy Colton, I think, is the only one. I think I even, maybe. Hopefully, I got his name right. Again, I'm not the history teacher. Um, but they're not name personalities. They're sort of like general type of people as opposed to name personalities. And I don't know if they're inspired by any sort of one person either. I don't think anywhere in the rule book or the history reference thing said that they were. But they're, they're general type people. Okay. After you've finished up all of the action phase, you will then do the slave market phase. So I previously talked about how there's slave market cards on the right. Um, in this phase, you will empty off all of those and put, try and fill up the um, plantation spots. If there are no open spaces on the plantation spots, the slaves immediately go to the lost track on the victory card. And I think that lost is, you know, synonym for killed. I'm not quite sure what happened back then. It felt like killed to me. Mm-hmm. Now then, if that's a, too heavy of a theme for you to be able to deal, um, I don't really know what to do. I did play with some other people who had difficulty with that part of the game that, you know, directly or quite directly because of my actions, slaves were being killed. Yeah, I mean, it's a heavy Actually, game, right? If if you're going to be uncomfortable, really... Is is it choice not to play? I mean, is it heavier than say Flashpoint, where because of my action, little meeple people are getting burned alive? <laughs> yeah, is I always it? feel I always feel bad when. But in there, the the people are more cartoony. I think. Well, I guess it depends on what version of the counters you have. But they're more cartoony, so it's it's easier to these are cubes. to make less. Yeah, but then the art and all this makes is all serious, right, in this game. So it makes you kind of like want to take the game seriously. I guess I this think. still goes into the question of how much do the mechanics really connect with you and really make you feel the theme. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't ever put myself really into the place of it. I very often just approach this from sort of the idea of I'm playing a game and it's a nice theme that goes with the game. So I, it, it doesn't really affect me hugely. I did play with some other people, and it did affect them much more strong about slaves going to the lost track. <laughs> the real problem is, is that at one point in time, you're going to have to make a decision where you're going to be sending slaves to the lost track. If you, you, I do not think you can win the game without having a lot of, uh, of slaves on that lost track. Just, mm-hmm. I just don't think it's. I don't think it's the sort of thing that can be done. It's a difficult game, so. Yeah, I see. Uh-huh. Well, you know, my wife won't play Pandemic because people die in it. Your cubes die in it. And, you know, I guess it's just some people. Some people. Yeah. Yeah, some people. Here we go. 
So anyway, that's the slave market phase. Um, and then the last phase is the lantern phase. In the lantern phase, again, you will move all of those abolitionist cards over um, and then rotate who's going to be playing first and second and discard some of those cards. And then you see if you won. If you win, you win. If you didn't win, then you lose. Mm-hmm. Okay, it does not okay. sound like a complicated game at all. Um, the mechanics okay. are simple and pretty straightforward. Ah, oh, that is such a good hot chocolate. <laughs> mm. And the history is good in anyway. the game. And... Yeah, so no, mechanically it's not a very difficult game. What I will tell you becomes difficult is how thinky the game is. Mm -hmm. When you have those tokens that let you move three slaves one spot, or when you start stacking up tokens and cards that let you move up slaves and things like that, you then have to sit there and figure out... I'm going to move him here and that's going to move the slave catcher here so that I can move this one. And then these slave catchers move here and then this one here and then this one here. And you will try and come up with a whole interconnected plan of how you're moving them all and moving all the slave catchers in order to get people up there. And you can't really like move that out all on the board because there's so many steps and everything is not like reversible. If you make a whole set of turns and they're like, oh, wait a second, I made a mistake. I want to take that all back. Nope. <laughs> nope. Unless you took a picture before you started. Nope. It's a bunch of naturally colored cubes on a board that have been moved around multiple times. Mm -hmm. Nope. Yeah. You, really, you really cannot reverse it in order to be able to think and move things around. You have to try to think through it all in your head. And when you're playing a five-player game and everyone has to do it one at a time. <laughs> yeah, if you make a mistake, that you got to live with it. Yeah, you really, you really do, which means that planning can be really, really ex extensive planning can be really hard. But you need it in order to be able to win. I find the game difficult. Um, what's interesting is that I may find the game in one player more difficult than two player, I'm not sure. Here's the trick. I've played the one... When you're playing one player, there's no solo rules. It just scares, scales the variant down. So you have to collect less support tokens and rescue less slaves. And with more players, you need more. So there's nothing special for solo in the game. But I win very rarely when I'm playing solo, even if I'm controlling multiple characters. So I've tried soloing it with up to three characters. And I still lose a lot more often than I win. Hmm. But at the same time, I've gone to my local store, Comic Seller, and played with up to five people. And I've also played one player with multiple people saying they think about it. And I tend to win more than I lose. I'm not sure if that's because multiple brain power makes it easier. I do not know. Hmm. Unclear to me. So I think that that may suggest that it's not a balance problem as opposed to just a my brain problem. Because I find when I'm playing it, you have to really plan and plot what it is you're doing. Now then, when I'm playing with multiple players, I can't plan and plot a lot because even when I'm playing solitaire, I plan and plot, I feel the same amount, but for some reason I win. <laughs> I, I do not get it. Maybe Maybe the thinking is more distributed, so, you know. It just makes it easier that way. 
I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But at the very least, that's that's where we're holding with that. So I'm not sure. I've I've seen some other people who say that solitaire is scale for balance harder than at multiplayer. So I tried to test that out by by these various different things, and I didn't really find it to be so. Um, but I did find it to be a difficult game, and you can make the game even more difficult. I do not want to. <laughs> <laughs> I think the game is plenty difficult already. Mm-hmm. I, you, you can push this up to the level that I consider impossible. Impossible to win. Wow, okay. If you win the game on solitaire, on the hardest mode, so that's on the red side of everything and with all of the hard variants and the rules, let me know. Because <laughs> I look at that and I say, that looks impossible. This looks like you will never win because you add additional support tokens. You add additional slaves to the start of the game. You have to rescue more. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I think that's impossible. But um, so the game is hard and it takes a lot of thinking. So mechanically it's not hard, but this is not a light and easy game for me. This takes a lot of thinking. That said, if you want a lot of light thinking, it's really good. This is not the game that on a tired evening I can sit down and play. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I want to sit down and think hard about a game, this is a great game to do it. Because it does challenge you, and mechanically it's a lot of fun to be able to have a plan and enact on that plan, even if that plan is not as many steps as you could have been, but to be able to have a plan and follow through on that plan is delightfully enjoyable. This goes in the category of having that puzzle and doing it similar to mage Knight or other types of things with those puzzles in the game, you find a puzzle and you do it. It is very satisfying. And this game is very challenging. So it's easy to understand how to do things for the most part. And actually doing it is a lot of fun. Okay. That, that sounds great. That really sounds like a great game. I've heard a lot about it before, but it's the first time I actually heard about how the game actually plays out well let me talk about some of my negatives because i know for me when i hear a review i want to hear someone's negatives also because if i hear negative, i'm like oh i i I can't live with that so um i i feel like you know really no game no game i that i've seen yet is perfect i can always find a fault or something i didn't like about it and i don't think that's a problem but I, i want to at least point out some of the things that i find problematic one thing that I find problematic is that each of the different time eras has a different color. The first era, the first period, is a um, dark green. The second period is a purple. And the third period is a teal green. Now then, that's a green and a green. Now then, they're two different colors, I'll grant you. Why did they make those so similar? <laughs> It makes it really hard to quickly and easily sort the game. Additionally, there's a lot of tokens. When you're playing with the different player counts, you place out different number of tokens. So you want to be able to sort the game by the different errors quickly and easily. And yet, and yet, they have a dark green and a teal green that are really similar in color. Why did they do that? Mm. They really were focused so much on colorblind design and colorblind friendliness that I really don't understand 
why the difficulty and contrast between those two colors missed someone by. So, so maybe they only tested it with colorblind people? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. And for me, it, it's actually an annoyance. Whenever I set up the game, it's an annoyance because I don't play because I really, I think this will become less of annoyance if I'm playing this consistently, not for review because I'm playing this consistently for review. I've been changing up the player count a bunch. Mm-hmm. Every time you change the player count, you have to reshift out all of the tokens and get the right amount of tokens in order to be able to have it all sorted out. I mean, you can bag everything and keep it narrowly by its correct era and have a whole bunch of different baggies. But what I've been doing is that I keep the in a bag the tokens I did use at the player count last time, and then all the ones that I didn't use at that player count go in a separate bag. So if I want to do more, I have to sort them all out. And even if I'm at the same one, I still have to sort them out and put them on the right spots. It could have been so much better if they had done that with a higher contrast. They needed to put that with a higher contrast. This is probably mm-hmm. the biggest issue I have with the game. Okay. Just though, because though that's not that a bad hard. issue because all that's doing is it's slowing you down a little bit, especially in the setup, it sounds like. It makes setup harder. And for yeah. me, I find with solitaire games, having a hard setup is one of the biggest turnoffs for me mm-hmm. actually getting the game to the table. If it's too hard for me to set up and get the game to the table, it's going to be the biggest turnoff for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, I really like Warhammer Adventure card game, and I'm really sad that it's been canceled. But you have to get a whole bunch of different cards from one big deck and set it all up and move everything around. Wizards Academy, which I still haven't done, you have to pull out all the different cards and get them all up. Those things have high setup times. I really like those games, so I live with it. But those are those are a hurdle to, to achieve. And the fact that these conductor tokens increase time with no mechanical reason. They could they all they needed was different contrasting colors. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Anyway. So that's the an issue with that. There's also a couple the the player mats. I don't use the player mats because <laughs> I don't like the design on the player mats. The way the player mats work, you put your roll card below it and your reserve card below it, and above it you have all the order of play. I never keep that around because it just seems to take up table space for little to no reason. I use the player mats as a reference card and leave them off to the side and pull out a player mm-hmm. mat when I need it for a reference card. I don't yeah, know it sounds they like they're, they're just that. there to help you learn the game. Yeah, I don't know why they made you do that. That just does that. That does nothing but make it harder. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and really, those are the only cons I have for the game. Other than that, it takes a ton of thinking and there's no way to reverse. But I don't think that there's any way to have fixed that. Yeah, and that's not necessarily a problem. You know, I mean, that that's just part of the game. If you make a mistake, you're going to lose, so you just got to play carefully. And that's often true in any competitive game. You know, if you make a mistake in your move, you can't take it back when you're playing against somebody else without messing up the what has happened. Well, I think, I mean, I play other competitive games, but you this one really encourages you to want to plan out really far in advance, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to do so. It's not a competitive game. If I'm playing Pandemic, we can plan out relatively far in advance with the information available to me. 
In this one, the only time that random information happens is when you reveal the next market card, which is going to affect me for probably four rounds, and when you roll the dice, which is a very small amount of effect each round. Randomness in this game is pretty small. Oh, hmm. and when and what the next set of abolitionist <laughs> cards are. So I can't plan for next round. But for this round, if you're playing five, six players, I think this goes up to six, but at least five. Maybe it's only five. One moment, let me double check that. Um... No, so it's only up to four. So if you're oh. playing with four players, <coughs> so if you're playing with only four players, um, it takes planning and it takes a fair amount of brain power to to hold it all together. Or it's just like we're gonna play this and see how it all works. Oh, look, that worked, and maybe this. I mean, I'm a solitaire gamer, so I definitely prefer to play this in the lower player counts than the higher player counts <laughs> yeah. because it did require less brain power in the lower player counts than the higher player counts. That's the, when you're playing with, with two rows, you, you find it there's more interaction then and more interesting choices? Because that happens a lot of rows? games. Yeah. Two Next, characters? Two characters. I didn't actually, know. Hmm. Um, you, you, I know. You do think about that in a lot of games. The biggest advantage to having two players is that in one phase, if you are buying a support token, you can buy three support token. You can buy three other tokens and one support token. Whereas in a two play in a one player game, you can only buy one support token and one other token. So that really reduces the amount of actions you can take in one turn. You will have a lot less to do on a given turn. But in higher player counts, you'll probably have to end up buying two support tokens and two regular tokens. So scaled, you find yourself with the same amount of actions scaled. So I don't, I don't, there's no interaction between the different players because everything scales up. As you get more actions, you have more slaves to deal with and more tokens you need to buy. Okay. So it sort of just like halves the game when, when you move from one to two players, it really sort of just halves the game because there's a lot less to do. And so it also halves the, the, the it also has the time of the game? Uh, no, it does not. Okay. Uh, it, well, it doesn't really have the difficulty of the game. It reduces the amount of time that the game takes. Yeah. Um, although even then, I think it's like 60 to 90 minutes. Um, so okay. it's not a huge reduction. It's not like for Farspace Foundry that it's 30, play- 30 minutes per player per game. Um, but it does take less time when you're playing with less players. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's no real interaction between them. So there's no concern to play with less players other than that. Some people are saying that it's an easier game with more players. That may be, I'll talk with you about that again in a year. <laughs> okay. Maybe in, a, maybe in a year, like there's some other games that after a year, I'm like, I got this game. I can tell you which one's harder, which one's easier. So check back with me in a year. All right. We'll see. And I'll tell you, you know, conclusively, not conclusively, <laughs> um, whether or not it's harder with one player, but I don't think that playing one player has any less interaction, which is really a, to the credit of the game. <laughs> hmm. That is neat. Well, right. That's a neat game. I like it. And also just to mention, by the way, I do really appreciate the, the rules were also very well done and very clear and easy to understand. Is there a lot of, we'll you said there's some pamphlets that come with the game also about the history. Uh, yeah, there's some pamphlets that come with the game. There's a um, reference page that is a one-page reference to make it easy to 
scale the game for the different player counts and to reference all the rules with a bit more detail than the reference card that each player get as their player cards. Um, and then you also have a book about the, in the, the end of it talks, the end of the rule book talks a bit about each of the different unique things on it. Like one paragraph on each of the, um, events that can come out in the cards and a bit about, um, um, not emancipation, uh, about abolishment and the movement and Abraham Lincoln and everything involved. There's a bit of that in the back of the rules. And then there's another pamphlet in the box about the museum dedicated to this and the stuff they've done and who they've worked with. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some work. There's definitely some uh, paper in there. If you want to read more about it, I did. History was not my strong subject in school. Mm. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, I read it. All right. I get, okay. I get points for reading it. Yeah, I'm playing yeah. the game because I'm here to play games. <laughs> play yeah. more games. I'm glad it has that though. That is interesting. So, so if somebody wants to know more about it, they can. Yeah, I mean, they did a great job with the theme. Mm-hmm. They did an excellent job with the theme. That's cool. I appreciate that. Yes, if you are a historian, you want this and you want Lewis and Clark. Okay. That's Two right. games that, that did an idea. excellent job with their themes, their historical themes. Excellent. So, really good game. Really liked it. Enjoyed it a lot. Very difficult. Brain burning. Super thinky. But Yay. very fun. <laughs> All right. And I think we should just stop there because I am falling asleep. <laughs> so, what's it missing? Nothing. Albert's snoring. Yes. <laughs> All right, guys. I'm going to let Albert go. All righty. Bye, everybody. You, you do the Albert. what's it's missing by yourself. and We'll see who wins. <laughs> Hey, I'm going to win this time. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening. All right, we actually made an excellent segue there. That was beautifully done. <laughs> it was, okay. And I'm sure that was a wonderful interview. I'm glad to have heard it. <laughs> but that never makes sense. Um, okay, so we had our segue, we had our segment going on, and now we're back from the interview. And what is next?